Well, hey, church, it is great to be together again as we keep asking good questions. And thank you for all the ways you're participating in that. Remember, you can keep asking your questions, uh, write them on the uh, connection card, email the church, and we're going to use those questions to populate this series when we come back to it later in the year. Uh, This week is the kind of the end of the series for now. We're just doing three weeks now to kind of set the stage, but we're going to come back to it later in the year. So make sure you're asking your questions, and we will come back to those kind of when we get to it a couple times uh, throughout the rest of the year. Hope you're paying attention when Adam talked about Connect Sunday. I cannot tell you enough how much it'll change your life if you connect in a group. Maybe you'll get in a group because you're lonely. Maybe you'll get in your group because you want to study God's word. Um, I, I know I, I, get, I tell stories like this all the time, but it's because it happens to me all the time. Three weeks ago, I'm on the phone with somebody and they have gone through a hard season. They've, they've been sick. They've lost loved ones. They've had some uh, job kind of turmoil. They've gone through a hard season. And I'm on the phone with them and I say, so how are you doing? Do you need anything? Like, you know, can we help or whatever? And they say a line that I have heard heard hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. They said, oh no, I'm fine. My small group's taking care of me. Or sometimes it's, oh no, I'm fine. My Sunday school class is taking care of me. And those of you who have that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, oh yeah, that's happened to me 20 times and I've done it for other people. If you want that, I'm just telling you, I don't know any other way, better way to get it than to join a small group or a Sunday school class. So uh, you can, maybe you do it because Jesus commands it. Maybe you do it because you're lonely, but I'm telling you, if for no other reason, get connected to a group of people here at the church so that when your life has trouble, you got people. That's what we all need people. Uh, So do that. Okay. All right. Questions. Um, Lots of questions are coming in. I mentioned one set of questions last week that I'm not, it's not what I'm talking about today, but I felt like I couldn't leave them unaddressed. And I'm actually going to mention it again this week. I'm going to say the same thing I said last week, just in case maybe the person I'm talking to wasn't here last week because of snow or something like that. We had three, three questions came in. They were all anonymous. One of them got left on my music stand. Some version of this question, does God love me? Or can God love me? Or can God still love me? Even though, and then they ended the question with something about their past or something about their identity or something about what they've done or what has happened to them. Um, And they were all anonymous or I'd call you back and tell you the answer. Uh, And like I say, if if you're one of those people who wrote that question or if you've got that question and you want to talk to me about it, reach out to me. But because I'm not preaching on it today, but that question has to be answered. And if you weren't here last week, I just want to say again, the answer to that question is yes. No matter what you put at the end of that sentence, the answer is yes. You go read Romans 7 and 8. That's where I'd send you. Romans 7, all Paul talks about is what a doofus he is. Uh, And then in Romans 8, he talks about, but nothing I am, nothing I have done, nothing I will do can stop the unstoppable love of God for me and for everybody. So go anchor yourself in that. If you ask that question and you want to talk to me about it, reach out. I get why you might have made that question anonymous, but I wanted you to hear the answer. Yes, God loves you, okay? Now, last week, we jumped from that little bit 
to uh, the question that kind of flows out of that. To prove God loves you, I'm quoting the Bible. And so that kind of brings up the question, well, why do I think the Bible's so true? Like, and that's a great question. Like, it's one of these core questions uh, and that we got to work on. And I, I can't repeat everything we talked about last week. If that's a question you have and you missed last week, go check it out online. We tried to talk in as skeptical a way as we could why I think it's very reasonable to conclude that the Bible is a faithful record of who God is and what God did through Jesus Christ. So go check that out. Um, but, but today we're kind of going to stay in that academic mode because once we've asked that question, um, if you just wait a little bit, another question pops up. Last question, we asked this question. We asked this, can we trust what they wrote? Like when they wrote the Bible, is there reason to think that what they wrote is true? And we said, yeah, because of the skeptical community and the eyewitnesses and all the stuff we talked about last week. And this week, just kind of a question that flows right out of it that I get a lot. Well, if, sure, we could trust what they originally wrote 2,000 years ago. But how can we trust that we have what they wrote? I mean, that's a lot of time, right? How can we be confident that the Bible we have today, most of us don't speak Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, the languages the Bible was written in, and you know, we don't have, how can we trust that what we have access to is what they wrote? I think that's a, that's a great question. I actually, in my ministry, I've uh, been doing this a long time, I actually get asked that question a lot. Uh, it comes a lot. I bet, I've been getting asked that question for 30 years, and I, I bet never a year has gone by where I haven't been asked that question at least once. Sometimes I feel like I'm getting asked it every other month or something, especially when I was a youth minister. God asked that question a lot. Uh, the, the, the origin, that question can occur to a person lots of different ways. It could just occur spontaneously. Like, oh, it's been a long time. How do we know? Or maybe a skeptical friend, right, pulls you aside and says, you know, the Bible you have is not the original Bible, right? Like nobody has a copy of what they actually wrote. What we have are copies and copies of copies and errors have been introduced. And so there's no telling whether what you have is what they had, whether the letter you've got is what Paul actually wrote. Who could even know? Maybe a skeptical friend asks you that and you're kind of like, huh? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Or maybe it's the game telephone. Anybody remember that old game telephone? We used to play this. When I was a youth minister, we played it all the time. If you don't know the game, you could try it sometime. It's a fun little game. You, you get 10 people or 15 people or something. You, you line them up in a row and you, you tell the first person a sentence like, all cats have long hair. And then you tell the first person to tell that sentence to the second person. And the second person tells it to the third. And they each kind of whisper it in the ear all the way down the line. And I've played this game dozens of times. And I'll just tell you what's happened every single time. Is by the time you get to the last person, the sentence they think they heard is nothing like the sentence you told to the first person. And you play that game and you, you're over here, you're thinking, well, that's sort of like me, right? And people tell me about Jesus because they got told about Jesus because they got told about Jesus and they got told about Jesus. And they, all the way back to the first person who ever told anybody about Jesus. And all these years later, how can I be confident that the story didn't get changed somewhere in all the, the telling? And that's a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good question. That's a pretty good question. 
But, but, uh, but the most common place that I've experienced that this question, the, the sort of, wait a second, do we have what they wrote? The most common place I've seen people actually get this question is from reading the Bible. That's where they get this question. That's where this question pops up. It's when they're actually, it's not from a skeptical friend or from a game telephone or whatever. It, it's when they're reading the Bible and they happen to glance down at the bottom of the page and they look at the footnotes. Anybody ever done that? Look at the footnotes? Most of you haven't. I know, don't, don't lie, but some of you might have, you know. Here, let, let's try a little thing. Some of you have a paper Bible with you, or if not, you've got a Bible on your phone, or you can Google it. Um, Google Acts 15, or look up Acts 15, or somehow turn to Acts 15, however it is you access the Bible. Uh, those of you who don't, access, don't have a copy of the Bible with you, I'll tell you what's going to happen. But, but if you do it yourself, it'll be more interesting. So Google it on your phone, open your Bibles, whatever it is, you get to Acts 15. And once you're in Acts 15, look at verse 34. Acts 15, verse 34. Take a look at Acts 15, verse 34. I'll give you a second to find it. Just, just wait. You know, look, turn the pages there or Google or whatever you got to do. Acts 15, scroll down to verse 34. If you do that, in any modern translation, NIV, NLT, ESV, whatever, RSV, whatever modern translation you look at, anything translated in the last 70, 80, 100 years, something like that, you will not find Acts 15.34. The whole verse is gone. There's Acts 15.33, and there's Acts 15.35, and there is no Acts 15.34. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? If, there, there probably will be a footnote on Acts 15.33. If you look at that footnote and you go to the bottom, it'll say something like this. This is what is in the bottom, the, kind of the bottom edge of most Bibles or uh, even online. Maybe you, the footnote might be a link. Sometimes you've got to click on the little letter and it'll pop up the footnote. It'll say something like this, Acts 15.33. Some manuscripts insert verse 34, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, the actual meaning of that verse doesn't matter. You can go back and read the text. It's a story about some people were in a town and some people went to a different town and some people stayed in the town and somebody's added, it seemed good to Silas to stay in the town where they were. That's, that's all it means. I mean, the meaning of it isn't what we're talking about. It's just the, the fact of it. Some manuscripts insert verse 34. That's a little spooky, right? Or maybe, in fact, for in my youth ministry, the single most common place that people discovered this question to ask me was when they were studying the Lord's Prayer. And they went to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Or if you've got your little electronic thing on your phone, go to Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. And they read the end of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 13, the Sermon on the Mount ends like this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in most translations, there'll be a little bracket. And it might not be D. It'll be kind of however their footnote system works. Sometimes it's by page and sometimes it's by chapter and however. But there'll be a little footnote bracket, a little footnote symbol. And then you'll go follow the footnote. And the footnote will say this. Or the evil one. Now, whenever you see in your footnotes, or, that's a translation note. That's them acknowledging, hey, listen, the Greek here, it could mean evil or it could mean the evil one. It equally uh, possible that the text could say, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. 
And we got to just pick one for English, but we want to be fair about that. We want to be honest about the translation difficulty. And so we're putting it in the footnote. By the way, I'll just say I love that. I love that the translators of the Bible are just upfront about, yeah, this was a hard one to translate. We're working, yeah, this one's tough. Because what that means is all the places they don't have that footnote, they're like, oh yeah, we know it. This is obvious how to put this one in English. We no, no questions here. So that's, I love that. That's great. Okay, okay. Well, that's what that means. Then there's a semicolon. And then you get this phrase, some manuscripts add. Same phrase we saw about Acts 15, 34. Some manuscripts add, and you'll recognize this. This is how we pray the prayer, right? Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. So people get this question from lots of places, but the single most common place people get these questions is when they read the footnotes in their own Bible. And they say some sophisticated version of what? Huh? What? No, what? Huh? What's that mean? What's up with that? And eventually what they're asking is, can I reliably say that the Bible I've got is what they wrote? When I don't even, when I got, so what does some manuscripts say? What does that even mean? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, we've got to know how did the Bible get from them to us? from the the authorship to us. Uh, The good news is we know, Colossians 4.16, Paul writes, after this letter has been read to you, see it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. We know how the Bible is distributed. When a gospel was written or when a letter was received, we talked last week about the first thing that happened was skeptical verification. They'd be like, hey, you eyewitnesses who are in our church, who were there when it happened, or you who knew the eyewitnesses, who who have been taught by Peter or taught by John, is this legit? Like, is this the way it was? So the first thing was a skeptical reception. And if the eyewitnesses were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's totally legit. That's totally what went down. That's it. That's good. That's good. Good. Yeah, good stuff. Then the next thing they would do is they would make a copy. They would pay some scribe. Most people were not literate in this time period. They'd pay somebody who was to get a blank sheet of paper or a blank strip of leather or a blank piece of parchment and make a copy of that book. Maybe they'd make a bunch of copies. And then they would send those with messengers to other churches in their region and other churches outside their region because they wanted other people to have a copy of this letter from Paul or this account of Jesus' life or this history of the early church. And they knew that it, you know, they couldn't send it via email. They couldn't photocopy it. There was no printing press. If they didn't make a copy and send it to some other church, there was, wasn't going to be a copy. So your skeptical friend who says, you know, we don't have any of the original documents that were written, What we have are copies, or copies of copies, or copies of copies of copies. Your skeptical friend who says that is exactly right. That is exactly what we have. And so the question we're asking is, given that what we have is copies, or copies of copies of copies, or copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, can we from those copies know that what they said on the first copy? Now, as with last week, the, the issues related to this for the Old Testament and New Testament are distinct. So I'm going to mainly focus on the New Testament. I'm just going to talk real quickly about the Old Testament. 
The copying tradition of the Old Testament, the preservation tradition of the Old Testament, is almost completely controlled by a process called the Masoretic tradition. The Masoretic tradition was tightly controlled, well-organized, and well-disciplined. But because it was tightly controlled, it was, it, it, it's liable to one critique. Uh, and this was the critique that was commonly leveled against the Masoretic tradition during the Middle Ages and up to the modern period. The critique was this. Yes, you had an accurate process, but you had tight control. And so you've manipulated the text to say what you want to say. So it's not that it's inaccurate, it's that it's corrupted. And you see this still pop up in fiction literature today, that the Old Testament was corrupted by the Masoretic tradition. Well, first of all, it's just not true. They, were, they weren't trying to corrupt the text. They were just trying to accurately copy it. But secondly, an amazing thing happened. Uh, in the midst of all these people saying, oh, yeah, you've corrupted the text. We can't trust your process. And them saying, no, really, we haven't. We've been we're in a really good process. In the middle of all this, some shepherd finds a bunch of pots with a bunch of texts in them that we today call the Dead Sea Scrolls that backdated our copies of the Old Testament thousands of years, and they're exactly like what the most current Masoretic text said. And so, in fact, we have this amazing archaeological demonstration that the Masoretic process is radically accurate and faithful. So we can just like, we can just sort of flippantly say, yes, we totally have the Bible Jesus had. I forget if it's 10 words or maybe it's even 100 words out of the hundreds of thousands that were like, yeah, we're not 100% sure on that word. But it's like that. The Old Testament tradition, go, go study it, go learn about it. But radically accurate process, radically verified by archaeology. The New Testament process is a little more complicated because there was no central organization controlling the transmission and copying of the New Testament like the Masoretic tradition did for the Old Testament. Uh, so the New Testament, um, we have more variants, more places where somebody could write uh, some manuscripts say. And I want to be real literal. I want to make sure you really understand what I mean when, when, when I say variant. Or when you see that in your footnotes, when it says some manuscripts say blank, what does that literally mean? Well, here's what it literally means. It means somebody found a super old piece of paper that has the Gospel of Mark on it or the Book of Acts on it. And on that super old piece of paper with the book of Acts on it, verse 34 is there. When you're reading along, that sentence about Silas decided to remain is in, it's on that super old piece of paper. And then somebody else, somewhere else, found another super old piece of paper and, that has the book of Acts on it. And on that super old piece of paper, that sentence isn't there. So when we say some manuscripts, uh, that isn't some sort of vague metaphorical reference. It means literally we found an old piece of paper or an old piece of parchment, which is now sitting in a museum being documented and studied by um, textual analysis. Uh, so we, we have the piece of paper somewhere. And as Christians, we've got to be scrupulously honest. These pieces of paper do exist. So it does us no good to pretend and say, oh, no, there are no variants in the whole Bible. We have no questions about any words of the Bible that we have. You know, it does us no good because the pieces of paper are there. 
we can find an old piece of paper that one piece of paper has the sentence and one piece of paper uh, ha- does not have the sentence. Again, just for clarity, I'm using the word piece of paper metaphorically. Most of these aren't actually written on paper. They're written on leather or parchment or vellum or some other kind of thing, but I'm using paper metaphorically here. Okay, okay great. So, um, so this, is, this is the situation we have. And this situation is the reality for all ancient documents. Every document before Gutenberg invented the printing press was transmitted by copying, and all we can do is go find all the copies we have and see if they are all, they're all the same. And to be clear, for every ancient document, they're never all the same because people make mistakes, even the people who copied uh, the New Testament make mistakes. They'll leave out a word. They'll misspell a word. So what's our situation? We're going to be real blunt about our situation. And and at first it'll sound scary and then it'll be less scary by the time I'm done. Here's our situation. We've got 300,000 of these differences, 300,000 places where we can find one piece of paper says one thing and a different piece of paper says a different thing. 300,000. 98% of these are just a situation where we have a misspelled word a dropped plural, or two words have been switched in order. 98% of them. We've got, you know, 50 versions of the gospel go of Mark, and we got one that has a misspelled word. Well, because we're trying to be scrupulously honest, that would count as a variant. That would count as a some manuscripts say. But it's not like we don't know what the original was. If, you know, we've got hundreds of manuscripts. They all have the word spelled correctly, and the one has the word spelled incorrectly. I think we know what happened, right? We're not mystified. By that. 98% are like that. There's just, there's just nothing there. There's just nothing. 2% of them, though, we're like, okay, we've got to study this. The way we study it is through a discipline called textual criticism. It's an interesting day for me to preach on textual criticism because the man who taught me most of what I know about textual criticism uh, just passed away um, Tuesday, I think. His name was Bob Hall. Um, he was a brilliant uh, New Testament scholar, taught at Emmanuel for years, PhD from Princeton under Bruce Metzger, the greatest New Testament scholar of the uh, previous century, um, brilliant text critic, brilliant defender of the reliability of Scripture, read a bunch of books on this. Um, so it's a little weird, actually. It's just, I don't know, I've got some feelings, uh, as, they, as the kids say, about preaching on this topic uh, when this afternoon I'm going to go to Bob Hall's funeral. Um, but the basic idea is this. You want lots of manuscripts. You want varied manuscripts. You want them from different parts of the world and in different languages so they couldn't have corrupted each other. You want good manuscripts. A manuscript with very few spelling errors. You know, if they were good at spelling, they probably were good at accurate copying. So you want good manuscripts. And you want old manuscripts. The older the manuscript, that's the closer it is to the original. And that means the fewer copies might have been in between and the less opportunity for error to creep in. So let me tell you what, what text, and just to be clear, every ancient document you've ever heard of, this is the way we get to the original text, is through text criticism. There's no exception to this. Um, for a typical ancient document, um, so a lot of Roman history is based on a book called Caesar's Gallic Wars. Caesar wrote about his adventures becoming emperor. He wrote a book called Caesar's Gallic Wars. A lot of ancient history is based on that. For that document, we have 12 copies. And the oldest copy we have is there's a 900-year gap between that copy and when the book was written. 
And that's pretty typical. That's the kind of manuscript evidence we have for most of the ancient books you've heard of. Maybe you've heard of Virgil's Aeneid or Hesiod's Histories or some of these ancient books. And that's kind of, that's pretty typical. Um, maybe 15, maybe 20 for some, maybe six or seven for others. Uh, again, the most faithfully, most reliably attested ancient work is a poem by a guy named Homer called the Iliad. Um, This is the story of the Trojan War. We make movies about it today. Um, For this ancient poem, we have 2,400 ancient copies. And the gap between authorship and our oldest copy is about 400 years. So that's a lot better, right, than Caesar's Gallic Wars. That's pretty good. And nobody questions whether that's enough to reconstruct these documents. Nobody even questions Caesar's Gallic Wars. Like, everybody's like, yeah, we know basically what he wrote. Sure, there's a sentence here and a sentence there. We can't tell if that was in the original or not, but we know what Caesar's Gallic Wars said, and we know what um, the Iliad says. So, how does the New Testament compare? Remember, our benchmark, best attested ancient document, 2,400 manuscripts, Uh, with a 400-year gap. For the New Testament, we have currently more than 25,000 ancient copies. We're not even in the same ballpark. For most of the books of the New Testament, the gap is 50 years. For some, it's 100. 25,000 documents where our oldest copies are about 50 years after the original author. For some, it's about 100 years after the original author. The New Testament record is a text critic's dream. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of texts. So, for instance, that thing, some manuscripts say, the thing about Silas. I happen to know a little bit about that variant. The some manuscripts that say that, it's, it's a good number. But they're all from the same region. We call it the Western text of uh, the book of Acts because they're all from the same region. And all the texts from all the other regions don't have that sentence. So it's not like we're confused about what happened. One copy in one region, somebody wrote a footnote that eventually made it into the text, and it kind of filtered throughout that region. But none of the other regions have that sentence. So we know what was in the original, which is why that sentence is in a footnote and not in the text itself. Like nobody's wondering what was in the original about Acts 15, 34. We've got lots of texts. We've got old texts. We've got varied texts, texts from different regions and different languages so they couldn't cross-contaminate each other. And we've got good texts. Here are a few quotes. D.A. Carson writes a great New Testament scholar from the previous century, the purity of the text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. And I know a, ta- a statement so profound feels like surely that's an exaggeration, but it's just not. The, the variants that are really in question are, are trivial compared to the, the text itself. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, again, greatest text critic of the previous century, writes, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Uh, in the end, 
One thing scholars like to do is they like to do this. I think it's a helpful thing. They'll, they'll do this. When we look at all the textual evidence and compare all the documents, are there any places left where we're actually unsure about what was in the original text? And the answer to that question, from, from a historical perspective, I mean, this is not no question of faith, but just historically, you know? And the answer to that question is yes, there are some. Out of 138,000 words, uh, most people estimate that somewhere between 350 and maybe 450 words were like, yeah, I, do, I just don't know. Was that phrase in the original document? I can't tell. All these manuscripts have it and all these manuscripts don't. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. When you study Greek or you study text criticism, in most Greek Bibles, it has below it what's called the apparatus. And where, where the English Bible would just say, some manuscripts say, the Greek Bible would actually list these 150 manuscripts say this, and these 900 manuscripts say that. And you compare them, and you're like, oh, that's super late, and that's, and that's in Latin, and that's really old. And, you're, and it, for almost all of these, you're at the end of it, you're like, oh, well, obviously, this is what was in the original. We can see they added that word or whatever, you know. Um, so it really, it's, it's like, well, here's the thing. I know. I mean, basically, here's the thing. Anybody who's really worried about this question, and I'm preaching on it because it could be you. you. Anybody who's worried about the question, do we have what they wrote? When somebody comes to me worried about that question, here's what I know to be true. They have never studied it. It's just one of those questions. The only kind of person who is worried about the reliability of the transmission tradition is a person who has never studied the reliability of the transmission tradition. Because even the most skeptical scholars, people who reject Christianity and reject faith, know scholars are wondering this. The textual record is too extensive, too diverse, too ancient. Um, we have the books they wrote. Can we go for kicks and go find, oh, in that whole letter, that one word, man, we just can't figure out if that one was in the original. Yeah, sure, we can do that. We can go find a word here, a sentence there, a phrase there, absolutely. But nobody's wondering. Uh, and none of these things affect any point of doctrine, affect any point of faith, affect any claim of history. None of them, they're, 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 you know, it's always something that is affirmed 12 other places in Scripture, so even if that phrase wasn't in there. Now, I'll just say a couple things. First of all, if we can be so confident in the text, why do I even bring this up, right? Well, for two reasons. One, um, because eventually you'll read the footnotes, right? Like, you're going to read them eventually, and then you'll be like, what does that mean? And I want you to know what it means, so you're not thrown off by it. And two, because I believe that our Christian witness is strengthened if we're as honest as we can be about what we actually have. When we pretend like there is no variance in the textual record, that's when we set ourselves up to look like fools. Because these pieces of paper exist. You can go to the British Museum. You can learn Greek. You can read this document that was found in Syria that's from the second century. And you're like, it says this. And then you go over and read this document that was found in Libya. And it's from the first century. And it says this. And they don't say the same thing. So if we pretend like these pieces of paper don't exist, we just look silly. The second reason I want to talk about this is, remember how last week we said we have this myth that we just sort of have to take somebody's word for it, 
And we either believe him that Jesus rose from the dead or we don't believe him. And we just said that's just not true at all. Like our faith does not depend on one person's spiritual experience. It's a public record of a public witness. And the same thing is true about the textual tradition. You don't have to take my word for it that the Bible is reliable. That isn't what we say. When people say, how can I know the Bible is reliable? We don't say, you just believe. No. In fact, quite the contrary. Say, don't believe. Go study the text. Go learn Greek. Go travel to the British Museum. Go travel to the Egyptian Museum. Go to Nag Hammadi. Look at all these pieces of paper. And when you come back, you'll be sorry you asked because you'll have spent 10 years of your life recognizing that we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts and we're digging up more every day. That's the other cool thing about this is, um, you know, 50 years ago, the, the textual tradition was less reliable than it is today. A hundred years ago, the textual tradition, you know, 50 years ago, I would have had to say, we've got 21,000 manuscripts. A hundred years ago, I would have said, I would have had to say, we've got 17,000 decent manuscripts. 150 years ago, I would have said, we've got 12,000 decent manuscripts. 200 years ago, I would have said, we've got like 400 and most of them are in Latin and they're really late and there are all these gaps. And then somebody goes and finds, uh, I think it's P46, right? Isn't that the one from the Gospel of John? That we, it's like from 105 or something, you know? It's like, what? We've got, you know, and it, the, the, the tradition we have now, the textual tradition is so early, there isn't enough time for major errors to be introduced. And it's so diverse, it couldn't have been corrupted. Like, even if you want to say, oh, the church corrupted it. No, they didn't. They didn't have control of it. It was too diverse. And so anyways, that's the reason I talk about it. Because I want people, I don't want you to just say, ah, preacher said we should trust the Bible. No. The more you ask this question, the greater your confidence in the text will be. All right. We've got to land this plane. So we've got these two questions. Um, did they write something that's true? And then the second question, do we have what they wrote? Okay, that was last week. Do they, did they write something true about Jesus? If you want to see why I think they did, go watch last week's sermon. That was last week. Did they write something true? This week, do we have what they wrote? Okay, those are great questions. And to, to tackle those questions, you've got to study. If you really want to tackle those questions, you'll have to learn some languages. I mean, it's work to tackle those questions and really get into them. I want to tell you one more thing that's unique about the Bible. So the origin of the Bible is totally unique. We talked about that last week. It's like no other book. The textual record of the Bible is completely unique. The second best attested book is the Iliad, and it's got 2,000 copies. We have 25,000, okay? So the textual record is totally unique. I want to tell you one other thing about the Bible. This one you don't have to study. This one you can test yourself. And I want to say this. I want to say the function of the Bible is also unlike any other book. Real quick, just look, look at Scripture with me. First uh, Timothy 3, 16, 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love this verse. Leave that up there for just a little bit. I want you to notice there are two claims in this book, in this verse. And I want, what I want you to tell you about these claims are that you don't have to study them because you can test them. You can become like a little Bible scientist. You can test these claims. The first claim is that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's a reference back to the creation story. Adam, I mean, God formed Adam out of the mud and the dust, and then God 
breathed life into Adam and made Adam alive. And what I want you to understand about that claim, we sometimes focus and we say that that God breathed is a claim about the, the past. It's a claim about how scripture got written. But that is not what Paul is trying to say. Well, obviously that claim applies to the past. Paul is actually trying to make a claim about the present. He's trying to say, right now, Scripture is alive with the Spirit of God. And that's not a claim you study. That's a claim you test. And I dare you to test it. You say, I'm going to go to God's Word every day for a year and find out if it's alive with the Spirit of God. Because that's a crazy claim. That's so much crazier than anything I've said about the Bible. Yesterday I said it was true. Today I said it's reliable. Paul says it's alive with the Spirit of God. Go find out. You could test that. You could, you could, you could read God's word every day and find out if, you, if you, you feel think it's alive with the spirit of God. And then he says another claim. I love this claim. It's totally different than the first one. First one's all spiritual. God breathed alive with the spirit of God. And then he says this. Oh, by the way, it's also useful. It's good for stuff, you know. Treat, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training so that you can be equipped to do every good work. I love that Paul says useful, the Bible's useful. I mean, think about how the word useful, you know, hammers are useful, right, you know? And I think about a person, I think about a person who was really into hammers, you know? They had a hammer collection. They had one of all the different types of hammers, and they could tell you what that hammer's good for. And They had a cabinet in their living room where they kept all their hammers, and they had their, their grandma's old hammer and their grandpa's hammer and the hammer they were given when they were a little boy and the hammer they bought when they went to college. And they got all these hammers in the cabinet. They got a hammer on the coffee table. It's sort of covered in dust, and they pick it up and wipe around the hammer every once in a while. And you ask them, well, do you ever build anything? And they say, well, of course I don't build anything. I would dent my hammers. And you sort of wonder, do you know what a hammer is for? Hammers are useful. The Bible is not, to, we don't worship the Bible. We don't revere the Bible. We use it. It's for stuff. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training so that we're ready to do all the good work. And I'll just say, all that other stuff, you guys, that other stuff we talked about last week, that's awesome stuff. The Bible has an utterly unique authorship context that makes it worth believing in. You should study it. The Bible has an utterly unique transmission tradition that gives us confidence that the text we have is what they wrote. You should study that. But this last thing, don't study it. Just test it. Go to God's Word consistently. And see if you don't find that it's alive with the Spirit of God. I think you'll find that. Go to God's Word consistently and see if it doesn't become useful if you aren't taught and rebuked and corrected and equipped for the good work that God has for you to do. That's, 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 I, just, I would just say do that. And, and one last thing, one last thing. If it turns out that we can trust what they wrote and that we have what they wrote, you're still going to have questions, okay, out on the edges. But if we can trust what they wrote, and if we have what they wrote, then that means there was a dude named Jesus who lived an amazing life, said he was the Son of God. In fact, he sort of even said he was God. He said that through him everybody could be saved said he was the lamb come to take away the sins of the world. 
And then he died while everybody was watching. And nobody saw it coming, and everybody was so heartbroken because, like, this was the end. And then he was alive again. And hundreds of people saw it. And, like, they all knew that, like, nothing will ever be the same because he's alive. And you can still have questions. Um, Acts 14.34. I'm not 100% sure whether that was in there or not. That's a question. But it doesn't affect Jesus' resurrection one bit. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything in the whole world changes. And he's the only person worth trusting your life in. That's why the reliability of God's word matters. Because it's core witnesses to a guy named Jesus. And if you want to learn how to trust him more, we're going to sing in just a second. band's going to come out. You come talk to me. And we're going to sing about the resurrection because that is the central witness we're talking about. That's why all this matters, because they bear witness to the resurrection. And if Jesus rose, everything's different. Let me pray for you right now. God, we thank you that we don't just have to take somebody's word for it, but we can actually use the skeptical tools of history to increase our trust in the reliability of your word. I thank you for thousands of manuscripts and all the archaeologists who dug them up and all the linguists who learned how to translate them and understand them. And I thank you about how they just, they just increase my confidence in your word. And I thank you for the claim that your word is still spiritually alive and still spiritually useful. And I pray that some people here today would go put that to the test. Go find out for themselves what you promise about your word. Because we need that today. And if today's the day that we have just enough trust in you to say we're in, we're going to put our lot in with Jesus, would you help us do that today? Maybe some brave person wants to come talk with me and pray with me and take that step today. We lift all this up in Jesus' name, in whom we pray all these things. Amen.